Welcome to the first episode of the Revolving Doors podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Revolving Doors is a charity that aims to break the cycle of crisis and crime for individuals who have repeat contact with the criminal justice system. My name's Anna Henry and I'm the Director of Policy. And for this first episode, I'm delighted to welcome Brendan Cox and Logan Hunt from the US-based nonprofit, The Lead Bureau. Our aim with this first episode is to learn all about them and their approach to police-led diversion. Hi, Brendan and Logan. What brings you to the UK? So hi, Anna. How are you doing? It's great to be here. So we were lucky enough uh, a few years back to be in Edinburgh at a, a law enforcement public health conference. We met the folks from Revolving Doors. We were able to meet you guys and uh, started talking to you all about um, what we did at Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion and how we uh, did pre-arrest diversion programs. And uh, through those conversations, um, led us to, uh, to come here to the UK and share some information on what we did and uh, learn from you all what, what's going on here in, uh, in England. So it's been a, a really good time to be here. It's great to have you. Can you tell us what is the LEAD Bureau? Sure. So the, the uh, LEAD is Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion and Let Everyone Advance with Dignity. We'll get into that a lot more as we talk. Uh, but we really try to, uh, to work with jurisdictions around the world to do pre-arrest diversion um, for folks with unmet behavioral health needs or living in poverty or homeless um, who have uh, contact with the criminal legal system and rather than have them continue to be arrested, divert them out of the system and into long-term street-based, harm reduction-based services. And the LEAD Bureau exists to provide technical assistance and guidance for those jurisdictions that are looking to adopt LEAD. And we carry out that that technical assistance, not just when folks are looking to implement, but uh, all through their operational periods. And we came into existence because of the fact that so many places around the world were looking to see what Seattle started way back in 2011. So let's go back to the beginning. Logan, tell us about the origins of the Bureau. Yeah, so back even before we started the LEAD program, there were um, major disparities in our criminal legal system, racial disparities. So at the time, it was evident that, you know, in Seattle, which is a medium-sized city, was 8% African-American, but made up 65% of those who were incarcerated. And so um, in order to address this, our boss, Lisa Dugard, was effectively suing (laughs) Uh, the Seattle Police Department and the prosecuting attorney's office. And this was going on for quite a bit of time. And after a while, finally, they all kind of came to the table to say, what are we going to do? You know, we got to work this out. We got to figure something out and come up with an answer. So, you know, the civil rights folks and the criminal legal system folks, so prosecutor Dan Satterberg and Lisa all sat down and came up with this idea for the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program. And like Brendan said, you know, this was a diversion program in order to address that racial disparities. You know, at the time, the same folks were cycling in and out, revolving door in and out of the criminal legal system. And so instead of keeping on arresting them, which wasn't doing anything, you know, this was just an, another arm of the war on drugs, they just decided, well, let's, let's divert them into those social services and not even arrest them. So that's pretty much how it all really started. There was nothing else like it in the country. So this was the first of its kind. And can you tell us a bit about some of the challenges you faced in those first years? 
Yeah, I think probably some of the biggest challenges that we faced were, um, you know, police buy-in. <laughs> they were, you know, we would talk, we talk about the stories of us sitting around the table, much like this one, and officers sitting on one side of the table, and us case managers sitting on the other side of the table, and trying to talk to them about what harm reduction is and how we're going to work with folks with this, you know, a very um, client-driven goals and things like that. And so it was really hard for them to kind of wrap their heads around this idea of harm reduction, trauma-informed care, and that we weren't going to arrest them into or out of their substance use and mental health issues, but that we were actually going to really meet folks where they were and kind of walk alongside them on their journey. And so I think that was probably our biggest challenge was trying to get uh, officers on board and make those referrals as opposed to arresting folks. Um, but you did, and you know it took hold in Seattle. Um, how did it kind of grow from there? The success that you you experienced in Seattle, and then you you know you started to expand it across the rest of the USA. I think one of the things that really helped it be effective was that we started in a very small area. We had this one catchment uh, neighborhood called Belltown. And so there was a lot of, um, at that time, you know, in Seattle especially, there was an open-air drug market. And so we really focused on this one area because that's where a lot of the arrests were happening. But because it was so small and because the same folks were there and the same folks were getting arrested, and it was the same folks that the police had been seeing for 20-odd years, you know, who had been arrested, you know, over and over and over again. And so I think what really helped is that once that one police officer made that one first arrest, and then we started to see how working, doing that intensive case management was actually helping, and that folks were actually getting into housing. They were getting their basic needs met, and they were seeing how they could actually call a case manager to address, and that case manager would come down and meet that police officer in, like, real time instead of the police officer actually having to arrest the person and going through that whole process. So I think it was really word of mouth, not only for police officers to want to make those types of um, diversions or, or to call and work with the lead case managers, but also really word of mouth with the participants, and so there came a point where they were actually trying to find creative ways to get arrested, in quotes, in order for them to be um, diverted into lead. So why did you choose Belltown as a place to start? Can you describe it to us, kind of tell us what it's like and what the experiences have been there? Yeah, it's, a, it's an old neighborhood, um, and it has sort of this one main road going through it that goes north-south. Um, all the way through Seattle. So it's just kind of a small section. And in that small section, there were at the time several, probably like five or six um, nonprofit services for folks experiencing homelessness, um, substance use disorders. And so it kind of not only drew a lot of folks to that area, and it also drew a lot of folks who were, um, how do I say, who are also dealing And so there was just a lot of activity in the area at the time. There was also quite a bit of um, violence going on there at the time, violent activity as well. 
And so they picked that area just because I felt like there were so many people who were being incarcerated from that from that neighborhood, but mostly because they had untreated behavioral health issues going on, because they were being picked up for substance use and for mental health issues and co-occurring disorders. It was just a concentration of folks from that, from that particular place. So when you talk about word of mouth success, is there a particular example that, that comes to mind where that was effective? Yeah, so there's one story that we like to tell quite a bit for word of mouth. So at the time, what we did was that we had like a green light and a red light days. So green light days were the days, and this was for um, research purposes and data picking up purposes. So we had green light days and red light days, and on the green light days are the days that officers and law enforcement could actually do a diversion. Red light, they wouldn't. And so um, over time, one particular individual who was very well-known in the area, who also had um, a lot of contact with law enforcement for a long, long period of time, for years and years and years, she was getting arrested for crack cocaine and for her substance use. And so um, word of mouth about lead over time um, got to her. And so one day she walked up to police officers and she said, hey, is this the day that, you know, I can get into the lead program because I really, really want to get into this program. I hear it's great. And I need help with housing and I need help with a lot of just, just, you know, just support. And they were like, yeah, today is the day, you know, we, we can get you into lead, but she would have had to actually have committed a crime at that point to, in order to be diverted. So she went around the corner and um, I think she picked up like a, like a pipe, like a crack pipe and a couple bumpies of crack. And she came back around and she waved her pipe at the officers and she was like, okay, now can I get into the lead program? And so this was just sort of like one of those ways where here's someone who is actually needing to uh, commit a crime in order to get into the lead program. And um, effectively, that led to a second pathway into lead. So police officers, we all sat down at the table and told the story. Everybody was just sort of like, well, that doesn't make any sense that someone's having to actually commit a crime in order to get in here. When we know this individual, we know who she is, we see her every day, and we know what she's all about and what she's going through. So this led to a new pathway called social contact referrals. So instead, what police officers were able to do was say, you know what, I know Joey, and I've known him for a really long time, and he would be a perfect participant for the lead program. I don't want to wait for him to, um, you know, get caught stealing or using in order for him to get in the lead program. But we're going to just sit down and I'm going to, as the officer, refer him into the lead program. Um, and that also goes for the prosecutors can do that, can do a social contact referral as well as um, public defenders. All criminal legal system partners were able to do these social contact referrals. Was there a moment when in Belltown it was really starting to, you know, work and be effective and exciting and take off? Yeah, so by the time I started doing case management in 2013, it had been going for already two years. And so when I came on board, officers were making multiple referrals, social contact referrals were going. And so it was really picking up speed to the point where things were, we were starting to talk about actually expanding beyond Belltown and into other areas of the city. And how did it start to expand outside of Seattle? 
So I think there were three things that really contributed across the country to happen. I think one of them was that there was, you know, we were going through this 20-year decline on criminal activity, yet there were certain crimes that we were not seeing that decline in. You know, people were not seeing a decline in crimes that were related to substance use, um, especially substance use itself. Um, We had continued to, as police, we had continued to arrest people over and over again, again, and that was not deterring people from using drugs. And in fact, we know through the research and we know through our own, uh, our, our own history and our own experiences that we could arrest all the people we want for using drugs, and that number was increasing. Um, that was not deterring the people we were arresting from using drugs, and it was not deterring other people from using drugs. And the crimes related to drug use um, and even to mental illness and to other issues, those crimes were not stopping. So people shoplifting, people stealing from cars, those things we were not doing anything different with. So I think that was one of the factors. I think the second factor was there were actually police departments that were looking to try to repair some of the harm that had been done by the war on drugs. And the war on drugs was not a war on drugs, it was a war on people. And we had caused a huge amount of trauma in our communities, but especially our communities of color. Um, so I think there had been some jurisdictions that were trying to repair some of that and actually finally listening to the community and hearing that uh, we had not only arrested people, um, but those arrests had caused a huge amount of ongoing problems. Uh, you know, we put people away at young ages for a long time, especially around crack cocaine, um, folks weren't allowed to go back and live in their home if, it was, if there was any kind of public assistance. Um, folks couldn't get jobs. Folks weren't, weren't able to see their families. Um, and we were trying to figure out how to do things differently instead of just continuing to, to, to do that over and over again. And then the opiate crisis had hit. So there were folks that were looking at this and saying, what are we going to do, just continue to arrest people and have people die? Um, this is not working. So I think those three pieces um, really were coming together and people were looking to do, to, to do something different. You know, I was with the Albany Police Department at the time, and I know the, the driving factor for us was that working with our community. You know, our community had said, you know, we've had enough of, of the war on drugs. We want to change what's happening. The political realm in the United States was certainly not moving fast enough. Um, Our legislative bodies weren't going to change the law. So if that wasn't going to happen, we needed to take some action on our own. And when we looked at what was happening in Seattle, it was pretty clear that uh, trying to change a system and change it in a fashion where we actually could utilize police officers' discretion to not arrest somebody, to get them the help they need, to do something pretty counterintuitive for law enforcement using this harm reduction approach, um, but taking that kind of step on our own um, made sense. And it was not only made sense, it certainly made sense because the early um, results back from Seattle was that it was also reducing recidivism. So if we could actually repair some of the harm that we were doing with our community and create a safer public, why wouldn't we do that? So I think that's what started to expand it. And I know that from at least from my perspective in Albany, we started to knock down Seattle's door to be like, we need to know what you're doing. Please help. And the folks in Seattle were very generous in not just hosting delegations to come out, but also traveling to places around the country to help try to give technical assistance all while they were doing their own full-time jobs in Seattle. 
And what's your reach now across the U.S.? And is there anywhere that's been a particular challenge? So, so we are in 75 jurisdictions in the U.S., and we're probably in about 23 or 24 states doing that. We have some very good places where, where statewide there's initiatives in, in 10 or 12 locations in that state. So the states have a really good vision to be like, we want this growing across our state. Um, there's some places, some states where they're just in one or two locations in those states. Um, and there's some states where there's no lead initiatives at all. I think that some of the challenges are uh, we see both sides of the aisle like lead. We see folks that are from more of the, the liberal progressive realm of, of wanting to stop the war on drugs and looking at this from recognizing that the human stance of this is the right thing to do. And we see folks from more of a conservative end seeing this as like, hey, this, this is going to cut back costs. And, and that's great. Um, if folks, whatever end they're coming from, that, that's really good. I think our challenge is that in the United States is that we have 50 states. Um, we have about somewhere around 18,000 police agencies. And we have, you know, all kinds of different laws and different levels depending on where you're at. So harm reduction becomes difficult for some states when possession of a needle, possession of a syringe might still be a felony. And we're coming in and being like, well, not only should a syringe not be a felony, but syringe exchange should be happening, and that should be part of the recognition of what harm reduction can do. And although lead is not equal to syringe exchange, we're doing something different. We're not doing a, a tangible one um, interaction piece. That is one of the great examples we're able to use when we come into a jurisdiction to talk about harm reduction and how it works and how it can be applied. So when we're trying to break down barriers with police and we're trying to talk to them about different types of harm reduction and we get to something like syringe exchange and it's like, no, we arrest people and charge them with a felony. We're like, okay, we need to take five steps back and we need to really get into this a lot more and break those barriers down. And what do you regard as Leeds' most significant success through all this history? You know, I think the most significant success is changing the minds and the hearts of people in recognizing that the individuals we're dealing with deserve to be treated as human beings. Just because they've been in the system and they've been arrested 40, 50, 60 times, that doesn't mean they're not worth working with. That doesn't mean they don't have a life story. That doesn't mean they're not loved by somebody. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to work with them. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to just be like they can't be. We're, we just throw them off to the side and move on and just continue to do the same thing. And I think that's, that's what our work is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about changing those, those hearts and minds. It's supposed to be about working with those people, but it's also about changing those minds. Um, I think that's the significance of our work. When you, when you talk about changing hearts and minds, is there an example you can give where you've really brought people around? Absolutely. So, you know, we often talk about um, harm reduction um, and having harm reduction for police officers and meeting them where they're at. And one key thing we do with police officers is we train them on lead. And the, the training for lead includes harm reduction and what harm reduction is and why we're utilizing this philosophy. And understanding that most of us, me included, when we first started doing this, 
don't really understand harm reduction and, and why it is we allow people to make these incremental changes. And I said, allow, that shows you that I'm a cop, uh, that's allow, um, why it is that we meet people where they're at. So lead is a tool for officers. It's not mandated that they make a diversion. So in Albany, we trained, I, have three, I had 342 cops. We trained all 342 officers. And, you know, one officer was a great individual, a great human being, who's a great officer, but he had said, you know, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm up for this. I don't think I'm going to make any diversions. This is not for me. And he went along his way and didn't make any diversions until one day he received a call for a person who was ultimately inside of a Dunkin' Donuts on a coffee shop, and it was the busiest Dunkin' Donuts in the region, who would not leave. And it was a young man of color um, who was sitting in the store, kind of just hanging out. And when the officers got there, the officer talked to the management of the Dunkin' Donuts, and they said, the young man needs to leave or we want him arrested. And a really good sergeant showed up at the scene, and he started to talk to the officer, and he said, you know, what's going on, and what are you looking to do? And the officer said, well, this young man won't leave. Like, I'm, I'm going to have no choice except to arrest him. So the sergeant looked at him and said, well, you know, why don't we find out why it is he won't leave? And, you know, you do have another option. The officer kind of rolled his eyes and said, like, I said I would never do one of those. And he's like, well, let's find out why the young man won't leave. So the officer went over and said, you know, listen, you know, what, what's going on with your life? Why is it you won't leave? So the young man was like, listen, I... I'm having some issues lately, like I got really nowhere to stay. I'm just going through a lot of stuff in my life. Last night I stayed in the mission. You know, I stayed in this tiny little room with like bunk beds all over the place. I I can't stay there and I I just have nowhere to go. Like I I just don't know what to do. So the officer was like, well, if I could find, if I had somebody that could meet you and help you out to figure it out, would you leave? And the young man just grabbed his book pack, backpack and said, you know, let's go. I'll go wherever you want. So that officer that day, by meeting him where he was at and that sergeant, like reminding him that there actually is something else to do, um, he solved the problem. So, you know, there's absolutely different reasons for folks to do differently. Um, Not every ex-cop thinks the way I do about the war on drugs. That's okay. Like if we can find a reason and, uh, and have officers understanding that there is a different tool to utilize, you know, that young man... He was homeless and he had some mental health issues that needed to be addressed. The police weren't going to solve that. Arresting him for some low-level trespassing charge was going to do nothing more than add to the issues the kid already had. So that officer now makes more diversions, which is perfect. And thinking about the future and where is next for the lead bureau, what what are your priorities going forward? Um, we've always talked about the fact that we are really want to be community-based. You know, we came out of the out of the civil rights world, out of this recognition that the community and the civil rights world wanted changes in how policing was taking place, how public safety was taking place. And when George Floyd was murdered, we all looked at each other and said, we need to change what we're doing. We need to have another another avenue in. It was always the gatekeeper to lead was always was always law enforcement. So we started um, Let Everyone Advance with Dignity, which runs parallel to uh, law enforcement assisted diversion. And it gets community a direct pathway into, into referring people into lead. And it's truly, to take Sir Robert Peel's uh, words, and I'll, I'll not say them exactly, but 
the, the police are the community and the community are the police. It gives that community access to get somebody the, into, into lead. And it allows the community to recognize that they don't always have to call the police when there's an issue happening and that they now have the avenue to get somebody help. And by getting that person the help through a lead case manager and because the way lead operates, the system actors are all coordinating and making sure that we don't have a push-pull system, that we're not working against each other. So police and prosecutors and probation are actually thinking things out when somebody's in lead and when we're recognizing that we're not going to do things that are harmful to that individual and work against what the game plan is with the case manager. Um, it is truly becoming a community resource, and we want to see that grow, and we want to see that um, be the key to the success as we move into the future. And are you starting that in one particular locality? We've had some jurisdictions that were already doing law enforcement assisted diversion um, start to do that. But one of the, the, the things that we're really excited about is that Minneapolis uh, is going to start with exactly that. And they're going to actually say, you know, start off with being let everyone advance with dignity and start off with community referrals. And we're really excited about that. That sounds amazing. And we'll be really keen to hear more about how that progresses. So thanks so much for such a good summary of Leeds history and how you've grown in the US. It's been really interesting. I hope everyone listening has found it as interesting as I have. And I hope everyone considers joining me for our next episode when we're going to be delving much more into why police-assisted diversion is so important and how your model works. Thank you.